All right, Psalm 51. If you have a Bible, um, it is right in the middle. If you open the Bible right in the middle, you'll probably hit the Psalms. You might hit Proverbs, go a little to your left, and um, you will see the book of Psalms, the largest book in the Bible, 150 chapters. It is a prayer book. It is a song book, um, and I'm really grateful for our chance to study it over the next couple of weeks. Psalm 51 is where we are. We're going to study just this one chapter uh, for four more weeks leading up to Palm Sunday. And, uh, you know, it's about time because uh, we've been studying like 50 50 verses at a time. Um, Daniel chapter 2 is over 50 verses. The rest of the chapters in Daniel were over 30, over 40 verses. And today, just two. Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. We got started last week not by looking at this chapter, but by looking at the narrative that led to the production of this chapter. Uh, you remember Dan preached from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, the narrative of Daniel's life that is completely tragic. This great man had an even greater fall into sin. Dan mentioned last night, the, uh, or last Sunday, the superscript of Psalm 51, the superscript of Psalm 51. So if you look at the individual psalms, above them is some writing. That's what superscript means. It's script that is super, superior over the rest of the psalm. And the superscript of Psalm 51 uh, briefly covers what happened in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. I'll read it for us now. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David... When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So just that quick superscript gives a brief version of what happened in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Daniel, David fell into adultery. He coveted his neighbor's wife and then committed adultery with her. And this is now the response of David's heart. Having been confronted by the prophet Nathan and repenting of his sin, he now further elaborates this confession, coming before the Lord, seeking his mercy. So we're going to be in this psalm the next few weeks leading up to Palm Sunday. As I said, I encourage you just maybe once a day, uh, read this psalm. Take you easily less than three minutes, probably less than two, only 19 verses, but I think it'll prepare our minds, it'll prepare our hearts to dive even deeper each Sunday as we slowly work our way through Psalm 51, uh, learning how to confess our sin before the Lord. So let's read just these two verses, Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll unpack them. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Where do you go when you've gotten yourself in trouble? Who do you turn to when you've screwed up? Some of us can probably 
Recollect times during childhood when we broke a vase or we stained a carpet, we did something we knew we couldn't fix, we did something we knew that would upset our parents, so we hid. So we run to our room, shut the door, just hope that somehow it'll blow over, right? I read this week that even animals, specifically dogs, are known to have such a strong sense of when they've screwed up, of when they've disappointed their owners, that they'll hide. They'll crawl under a bed or they'll hide under the dinner table. One moment like this for me was so emotionally charged that I can still remember it like it was yesterday, even though it happened nearly three decades ago. I was 10 or 12 years old, and my house had a pretty big yard, half a dozen acres or so, so we had a little riding lawnmower, and this was one of my first times getting to cut the grass, one of my first times getting to drive the lawnmower, so I was feeling grown up, I was feeling proud, but I get to the area of our yard around my parents' garden, and I don't know what happened, you know? I just lost control. Not only do I take a swipe through the vegetables, but I also ran over one of those wire structures that you put around a tomato plant. You know, it sort of helps the tomato plant grow up instead of out. Yes, that wiry contraption is now wrapped around our lawnmower blades. And again, it was so psychologically tortuous that I can still feel the shame and embarrassment to this day. I'm crying, I'm pacing back and forth between the garden and the house trying to figure out how to tell my parents. I felt so humiliated. I just wanted the ground to open up and swallow me, you know, just get me out of here, hide me somewhere. Makes me think about in the creation narrative of Genesis chapter 3. It's very telling. After the first couple sins against God, they then hear the sound of the Lord beginning to approach them in the garden, so they hide. Previously, before sin had corrupted God's good creation, before sin had corrupted their hearts, Adam and Eve would have celebrated. They would have welcomed the Lord's presence, but now they hide from Him. Like children running to their room after breaking a vase, like a dog crawling under a table after making a mess, like me wanting to sprint into the woods after mauling my parents' garden. The first couple hides from God after they sin against God. What about you? Where do you go when you've gotten yourself in trouble? Who do you turn to when you've screwed up? A child breaking a vase, a dog tracking in mud, a young boy trashing a garden. These are maybe less serious examples, but the stakes get higher the older we get, right? I looked at porn again. I drank too much again. I raised my voice at my spouse. I cut corners with my finances. I lied about who I really am. Where do you go? Who do you turn to when you're caught red-handed, when you've hurt others, when you've sinned against God? 
Well, Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is an invitation for us to step out of hiding. Psalm 51 is here to give us a model for what it looks like to step into the light and come before God with our sin and with our shame. We don't have to hide from God. In fact, we can run to God because He is the giver of mercy. Yes, God is just. He is holy. He altogether cannot tolerate evil, yet Gratefully for us, he is also merciful, gracious, compassionate for those who come to him broken and repentant. And we're going to unpack these first two verses of the psalm by asking the question, how do I receive mercy from God? How can we experience the rich mercy of God to cover our sin, to cover our shame? First, David will show us that we receive God's mercy by appealing to His character. Receive the mercy of God by appealing to the character of God. So David's opening words of the psalm here are an appeal, right? They are a request. Look back at verse 1. David says, Have mercy on me, O God. So to have mercy on someone is to pity them. To have mercy on someone is to show leniency, to show goodwill, even though they may not deserve it. Some of you guys may remember from late elementary school or middle school, we used to play a game called Mercy. And two people, usually boys, would face off by locking hands with one another, interlocking their fingers, And then you would try to bend one another's wrists back, and whichever person cried mercy first was the loser. This was the way young boys passed time before cell phones were invented, (laughs) by torturing one another, playing mercy. Well, this is an example of mercy. Mercy is relenting. Mercy is pitying someone when you could crush them if you wanted Have mercy on me, O God. And then later in the verse, David again makes a second appeal. He says, blot out my transgressions. So this makes it clear that the kind of mercy David needs relates to his sin. It's not just that David is in a bad condition, like being sick. It's not just that David is in a bad situation, like being surrounded by his enemies. No, David has done bad things, and he needs God's mercy for his sin, because here he speaks of his, quote, transgressions. Transgression being another word for sin, a word which highlights that God has certain boundaries for us that we transgress. Through his law, God sets up boundaries within which our lives can prosper and thrive, but we say, you know what, I think I can define the good life better than God can, so I'll cross his boundaries and do my own thing. That's transgression. That's sin. So David is saying, have mercy on me for my sin. Blot out the transgressions I've committed. But notice with each request... He grounds it in the character of God. 
His appeal is not some free-floating ask. No, his appeal for mercy has a basis in the character of God. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions according to your abundant mercy. Because you see, David knows, David knows through God's revelation of himself that God is merciful, abundantly merciful. And David knows through God's covenant that God is compassionate, steadfastly compassionate. So David is not appealing for mercy on the basis of David's own character or David's own actions Like, God have mercy on me because I've been a decent person most of my life. God blot out my sins because they're really not that bad and I'm a good person overall. No, David does not appeal to his own character. David does not appeal to his own actions to make him worthy of God's mercy. Instead, he appeals to who God is. God's character includes loving kindness. God's character includes abundant compassion. If you ever got a speeding ticket or a traffic ticket before, then you know it's always mentioned by the police officer or somewhere written on the ticket how you can appeal. Call this number, go to this court, whatever. Well, later, when it comes time for you to make your appeal... You can't simply say, don't give me a ticket. Don't find me this money. No. You've got to have a basis to your request. You've got to have a justification for what you want. This is a court of law. This is not a place to be coddled or blindly affirmed. And so it is when we come before God. When we come to Him with our request for mercy, we can't appeal to ourselves. We can't appeal to our own character. We can't appeal to our actions. As David does here, our appeal must be based on who God is, on God's character. It makes me think about Jesus' parable that's most often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. It's in Luke chapter 15. You remember what happens. Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. And one of the sons, the younger son, he asks his dad for his inheritance early. And this was a highly offensive thing for the son to ask for from the father because normally you received an inheritance from your parents when they died. So for the younger son to ask for his inheritance early was for him to essentially say, Dad, you're dead to me. So give me my inheritance now. But despite this offense, Jesus says the dad does it. He gives the son this huge inheritance. The son then leaves town, goes to the city, and Jesus says, quote, the younger son squandered his property in reckless living. He blows all his money at the casino. He spends all his money on the finest prostitutes. He spares no expense for the best parties. And then the money is gone. The son is forced to hire himself out at a local pig farm. And the pay is so low 
and his resources are so few. He says, you know what? I'll eat out of the pig slop. And it's only then that he comes to his senses. He finally decides, I am going I'm confessing my sin. I'm asking for mercy. So he finally gets back home, comes face to face with his old man, and he says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So I want you to see the paradox here. On the one hand, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But on the other hand, the son still calls his father, Father. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You hear the irony in that? You hear the paradox in that? Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He admits his unworthiness as a son, but he still got it in him to call his father, father. He confesses his own unworthiness as a son, but he clings to the truth that his dad is still dad. Friends, that's what David is doing here. He's saying, I'm a sinner. I'm a transgressor, so have mercy, not because of who I am. I'm unworthy sinner and transgressor. Have mercy on me according to who you are. God, you are the lover of your people. God, you are the compassionate one. It's God's character as loving. It's God's character as compassionate. It's God's character as father. That's the basis upon which we make appeal for his mercy. So who is God to you? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word God? Maybe you view him as an angry tyrant. Maybe you view him as a distant, uncaring, nameless deity. Maybe you view him as a dad, but a dad who just barely tolerates you, almost because he has to. Well, friends, an important part of the gospel's work in our lives is that it redefines who God is to us. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. The Apostle Paul said to the church in Galatians chapter 3, You are no longer accursed, you are the redeemed. The Apostle John said to the church in 1 John chapter 5, You are no longer of the evil one, but you have been born of God. In other words, through the gospel, this is who God is to us. The Lord is a loving friend. Through the gospel, God is our compassionate redeemer. Through the gospel, God is our benevolent father. Because you think about it, Jesus served us as a friend by laying down his life. Jesus redeemed us by being accursed on the cross. Jesus experienced rejection and alienation that no son should ever have to, but he did it so that who we are before God would be different and who God is to us would be different. So do you know God as friend? 
Do you know God as Redeemer? Do you know God as Father? Well, through the gospel, you can. You make Jesus the center of your life, and more and more and more, He will redefine who God is to you. And then it's on the basis of that, it's on the basis of who God is to us, friend, Redeemer, Father, It's on that basis that we continually seek Him for new mercy every single day. How do we receive mercy? First, by appealing to God's character. Secondly, by appealing to His cleansing power. Receive the mercy of God by appealing to His cleansing power. Now, we already got a hint of this in verse 1. You remember that second request? It was phrased, blot out my transgressions. That same word for blot out, it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe dishes being wiped clean of filth. In other places, that same word describes someone's body being rubbed clean of dirt. And now David is saying the same thing about his transgressions. He needs them blotted out. He needs them wiped out, swept clean. And then in verse 2, he continues with this picture of cleansing from sin. He again makes a request, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. So iniquity, it's another word for sin. It's derived from an ancient Latin word, iniquus, which simply means unfair or uneven. So aquas is the Latin word for even or fair, and iniquus is the Latin word for uneven or unfair. And over the last several hundred years, it's evolved into this English word iniquity or injustices, things we've done that are not equitable, not just. So again, just another word for sin. So far in Psalm 51, he's used the word transgression, And now he uses the words iniquity and sin in verse 2. All essentially meaning the same thing. But more importantly, he's asking for cleansing from these things. So there's a sense in which his life has been stained. There's this ruinous effect to sin. The same way our clothes can be ruined by a stain, there's a sense that the goodness of life The pleasantness of life has been ruined or spoiled by sin. Let me share with you a little bit about how this played out in my own life and my own testimony. My freshman year of college, I was not a believer, but that's when I for real heard the gospel for the first time. And through hearing this message and seeing it in God's word, I suddenly became deeply aware of my sin before God. Oftentimes, we now use this Christianese phrase, I came under conviction for sin, or I felt convicted because of my sin. Well, that's what was happening to me. Basically, for the first time and in a really powerful way, I became painfully aware of my selfishness, my drunkenness, my sexual immorality, my desire for approval that I sought to fulfill through partying and playing sports. These sins that had been with me for years to that point, 
but I had little to no awareness. But all of a sudden, they are like in high definition and 3D. And I became convinced like, man, if God has a shred of justice in him, I am going to hell. Because my sin was all of a sudden so painfully obvious to me. And you know what happened during this season, which lasted right at a year? What happened is that life became less enjoyable. There was like this dark cloud over life all of a sudden. My awareness of sin had kind of stained or ruined or spoiled my enjoyment of life. I quit playing football after my freshman season because even though I was doing well, it just wasn't satisfying me like it used to. I did continue to party, you know, drinking and smoking, but I no longer did those things to enjoy them. I did them to numb me to the pain of how ruined my life was now. I used to party because, oh, this is cool, we're having fun, we're going crazy. But once I was turned on to the reality of my sin, partying just became a way to block out how miserable I really was, how convicted I felt because of my sin. But friends, that's what happens. Sin is a stain. Sin has a ruining power over our world and over us. God created our world good. Work is good. Marriage is good. Family is good. Food is good. Friendship is good. Sports are good. Art is good. Music is good. Over and over in Genesis chapter 1. Good, 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 good. Very good. Life is good. But now... Sin has invaded God's good creation and it's invaded each one of our hearts. And it's like a huge coffee stain on a beautiful white wedding dress. It's like a gross worm inside of a big, juicy, tasty apple. Sin has this staining, ruining effect on life. And so David pleads with God, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. He's later going to say in verse 7, purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That's another powerful picture of this, isn't it? When the snow first falls, it's untouched, it's pristine. You get your Morning cup of coffee, walk up to your back porch, look out, it's so beautiful, bright white. And then a day or two later, it's ruined. (laughs) It's like this dirty, grimy muck. That beautiful snowfall is blah. And so we praise, wash me, cleanse me, purge me. And so I ask you to... How has sin ruined life for you? How has sin stained the otherwise good life God has given to you? Sin perverts our desires, it corrupts our hearts, it clouds our thinking. Sin leads to a loss of self-control. It leads us to hurt the ones we love. It leads us to compromise our integrity. Sin drains the joy out of life. It is this big smudge on the otherwise gorgeous canvas of life. What does that look like for you? 
broken relationships, addiction to substances, dependence on unhealthy habits, losing yourself in work, neglecting those who love you and need you, lying about who you are. How has sin ruined your life, stained your life? Well, I want to encourage you that once you come alive to the reality of your sin, there is then gospel hope. Friends, we cannot cover up the stain of sin. We cannot ultimately numb ourselves to the stain of sin, but you can find cleansing from the stain of sin through the gospel. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul celebrates gospel truth in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. He says to the church, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, no, but He saved us according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit who He poured out richly upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by God's grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of of eternal life. The apostle says God does not save us because of our good works. God does not save us because we try to be a good person. God does not save us because we can clean ourselves up. No, it is simply all because he is rich in mercy. And as you put your trust in Jesus, he pours out his spirit into your life regenerating you, renewing you, justifying you, and the apostle says, washing you, giving you the hope of eternal life. And so I call on you right now, place your trust in Jesus. Make him the center of your life, and if you do, you will then know God as merciful. If you do, you will then know God as a tender-hearted Father and you will be able to make appeal to Him for new mercy every day on the basis of who He is, on the basis of His character, a compassionate Father. And if you put your trust in Jesus, then you will experience the cleansing power of His blood. You will experience the life-restoring power of His Spirit. This psalm is an invitation to you, come out of hiding. Psalm 51 is an invitation to us, step into the light with Jesus. This psalm invites us, come home to the Father. Experience the mercy of His embrace for broken sons and daughters like you and me. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's word together. And I'll lead us in prayer. And then we'll praise God once more through song. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning 
those who have wandered, those who've sought to do life our own way, those who've rebelled and rejected and run away to do life our own way, we come before you, Father, those who have hidden ourselves from your presence. Lord God, I pray that right now and over the coming weeks as we open your word, you would call to us. We pray that through your spirit and by your word, the gospel call to come home broken, repentant, with confessing lips and humbled hearts. God, may we hear that call. And I pray like never before, God, we would know you as a loving father who takes back the dirtiest sinner, who takes back the most unworthy transgressor because you have abundant mercy in your fatherly heart. So redefine for us who you are, God. Lord, we thank you that there is space for us to be honest about our brokenness. There is space for us to be honest about our shame. There is space for us to be honest about our sin and to cry out to you for mercy. So God, make us that kind of community where we can come into the light together, own our sin together, and together seek you for the renewing power of your spirit and the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. It's in his name we pray. Amen.